This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. You know, I, I have a question that I probably can't answer yet, but I'm going to investigate a little later. We drove past a, a hair place, for lack of, lack of a better term, and we could see in their back parking lot that there were four vehicles that had the logos and lettering of that haircutting place in that parking lot. Does that mean that they're doing mobile haircuts? Is this a thing? Or have they always had four vehicles? Is that, is that a thing? I, I knew nothing of it. So we will talk about that in just uh, a little bit if we can find out more about it. it may take a day or so. So I'm going to put in a call and see if I can find out about that. But if you know anything, if you've actually ordered a haircut, can you do this? I don't think you can. If you know somebody, maybe you run into some good fortune. And you can say, "Hey, you know, can uh, can we uh, can we meet?" And I've got these shears in the garage that you should be able to stand about six feet away, and maybe just clip up the side just a little bit. A lot of self haircuts out there, and they don't look all that bad. I don't know whether, but self haircuts are always based on one shot, usually from the front. And it's like a selfie shot, so you can kind of position it and think, well, I don't want to show the lump in my hair there. So wait a minute. Okay, just hold still, and then if I crop it and if I use this filter, uh should be all right. So I'm going to investigate that in just a little while. But when it comes to the London Public Library, what exactly do we know about the way that it is going to operate going forward? Let's find that out right now because we are lucky enough to be joined by their CEO, Michael Ciccone. Uh Michael, how are things? Oh, things are things are crazy, but they're good. <laughs> <laughs> you have been able to do a, a whole lot of thinking and planning, and I guess let's just kind of look at how things have been operating from the time that the doors had to close until now, and then we can go into how things are going to be operating going forward. Well, uh, since the closure, it's, it's mostly been uh, digital programming, uh, whether that be our collections or, or um, programming that's been um, provided virtually. Uh, there's been um, children's, children's programming, and there's been trivia, and there's been some adult programming, and everything has, uh, we've kind of gotten into a flow of that, and that will continue. Uh, but now that we've been given permission by the province to provide curbside service, uh, we've been gearing up for that for a couple of weeks now, and uh, we're set to uh, launch five branches uh, next Monday, and we're looking forward to it. We've been in the branches this week preparing, and, and we really are looking forward to seeing our patrons again, and even, we'll even if it's to... from a distance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, we'll get to those branches and, and list them specifically in just a few minutes. We're talking right now with the CEO of the London Public Library, Michael Ciccone. Uh, Michael, this happened so quickly. I mean, what was that aspect of this like where you have so many different services that you offer and then all of a sudden, as you say, unless it was electronic, it really wasn't happening, stopped in its tracks? Uh, well, I think that's... Um 
Libraries have, are very adaptable. We always have been. I mean, we, we consider how much libraries have changed over the last 15, 20 years. So I think we were ready for this. We've always had digital collections uh, in place. Uh, it, it was just an option for people to have, and, and many people to take advantage of the service. But now, obviously, while we were closed, it became a much more popular aspect of what we deliver. And um, so we, we just, and, and our staff have been tremendous at just, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is we want to provide service, and whether that's digital, whether that's virtual, uh, whether that's in person, we're, gonna, we're going to do it because uh, there's a demand out there for it, and uh, people seem to love it. Okay, let's kind of look at, at how things are shaping up as we move forward. So pickup service is being implemented, like you say, on Monday at five different branches. So it's the Beacock branch, it's the Byron branch library, the East London branch library, the Jalna Branch Library, and we need to note that the South London Community Centre, the Resource Centre, and Ontario Works offices remain closed through all of that, uh, mm-hmm. even though they, they are a part of that, and the Masonville Branch Library. So those are the five branches. How does pickup service, Michael, work? Well, if you've been to um, Home Depot or any of the retail outlets, it'll be a little bit different, but uh, relatively similar. Uh, we will have marking outside uh, the library uh, for people to stand and, and properly distance themselves, and we will have a single service point uh, near our entrance or in our entrance. Uh, if it's a nice day outside, we may have it outside our entrance. Uh, the staff themselves will be protected by plexiglass, and there will be no touch. Um, the patron will step up, and they will... Um, scan their library card. The information for that patron will be provided on the screen for the uh, staff. Uh, Staff will go and retrieve their materials, uh, put it on a table, and the patron will go happily on their way. the, the material will already have been checked out by library staff, and the material itself would have been um, um, reserved through our whole system. Okay. How did you go about selecting the locations that would kind of be the first ones to do this? I think they were just logistically, they were, they were spread out uh, throughout the city and logistically provided us the best opportunity to, to, to really uh, test this out to see how it was going to work. Uh, big, parking right? lot, big parking lots, things like that. Right. We're talking with Michael Ciccone, CEO of the London Public Library. Could other locations open up in the near future? Well, we have five scheduled to open on June 15th. Uh, the Central Library is scheduled at the time to open on June 22nd. Um, unfortunately, the Cherry Hill Branch Library and the Sherwood Branch Library are both in malls, and it is unclear as to when we will be able to get back in there. And we have three smaller branches that right now we're, we're keeping closed, but we, we you know, will explore that option as, as uh, time moves on and things change. When you talk about placing holds for items online or or doing it by phone, items can be books. Uh, What else can items actually be in this situation? Um, Can you can you uh, rephrase? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand. Well, I'm thinking. Well, you you can you can order a book to take out, but you have so many other services, whether it's laptops or internet or or do all of those kind of fall in line? We're not quite sure about the hotspots yet, but we will eventually make those available. We have instrument library. That we'll, we'll probably have to um, do a good thinking about before we continue that service. But books, CDs, um, uh, obviously books on CDs, uh, DVDs, uh, any, anything like that can be checked out. Okay, fantastic. Anything else you think we need to know about as, as this kind of launches on Monday? 
Yes, we are now accepting returns, but we want people to wait until they hear from us, until they actually bring their materials back. We know that they're eager to return some of the material. We not, have not been uh, charging fines um, for the duration of the closure. Uh, that will continue, but uh, we are contacting people to try to um, keep a, a steady flow of materials coming in rather than one big bunch of materials, which is at the at last count was 120,000 items. So uh, if patrons can wait to hear from us, um, and then you can come and bring your materials back uh, through the chutes. Obviously, we want everybody to keep distancing while they're doing that. And, and uh, you know, if one person's at the chutes, just wait for them to finish and then t- uh, go up and return your materials. That is remarkable. Can you go over that again? Did, did we hear that number right? You said 120,000 materials that, that are out? Yeah, 120,000 items at last count uh, were out uh, and waiting to be returned. Wow. Okay, well, we want to get all of those back so that yeah. other people can take advantage of those. But, yeah, make sure that you're doing it in good order. So what sorts of things should we be waiting for a call on? Uh, just uh, you'll you'll get an email for the most part uh, if you have signed up with our email, uh, letting you know when to return your materials. And also, if you're placing holds, um, if you've had holds on the shelves for a while, uh, you will be contacted by phone for those. But going forward, if if your part already know how to use our hold system, you just place the material on hold. You will get notified by email. And once you get notified, you can just come to the library and pick up your materials. Michael, thanks so much for taking some time to outline all of this for us because you've waylaid a lot of the questions that we've been getting for a little while because the library becomes such a part of of somebody's day and then all of a sudden that part is gone and now it's good to know that we've got a strategy to bring that back. Much appreciated. Stay safe. All right, you too. Thank you very much for the time. That's Michael Ciccone. He is the CEO of the London Public Library. So five branches are going to be operational for pickup service where you go online or you call and you can place holds on items and then you wait for an email or a phone call letting you know that those are available. You go to your pickup location during the pickup hours, which will be Monday to Thursday, 10 to 6, and Friday and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. That's Monday to Thursday, 10 to 6, Friday and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., and you've got to have your library card ready, and you return items using the return chutes because all buildings are still closed to the public. So the Beacock Branch Library, the Byron Branch, the East London Branch, Masonville, and the Jalna Branch Library, but again, the South London Community Centre and the Resource Centre and Ontario Works offices are still closed in that area, and you heard Michael mention Cherry Hill will become a big question. Well, why isn't that part of the library open because it's in a mall and it can't be yet and then there are other locations available so if you go to the website you can see all of that so if you're wondering okay well when's the one close to me opening that's where you go to find it we just heard the deputy premier and health minister mention contact tracing and i sit here and i scratch my head over this Because this is something that is very useful if you would like to prevent the spread of COVID-19, you must know where it is popping up. You have to. And we've seen other countries get this done in the midst of this pandemic, and we haven't. And it makes me wonder, is it because our country, our province, does not want to broach the idea seriously, saying, you know... 
uh, we're going to take some information from you, and we're going to know kind of where you've been all the time. And that that's legit. That's, that is a legit concern for a lot of people because there's a lot of privacy issues that come alive as soon as you hear things like that. But our current contact tracing is basically, if I have it right, asking people who have tested positive for COVID-19 where they've been, who they've been in contact with. And I can't stop myself from thinking that's the equivalent of taking a sharp rock and writing on a cave wall. It's prehistoric. We have better ways of doing things now. In Germany, Rob sent this through yesterday, and I thought it was brilliant. If you go to a restaurant, which you can do in Germany, you get a QR code, and you fill everything out, and you kind of go boop with your phone on the QR code, and then should someone have tested positive while you were there at that restaurant, you find out about it. And then you can take precautions. You can watch yourself. So that's a situation that seems to be miles ahead of where we are right now. Kilometers, megameters, whatever we would call it. It's far, far ahead. Let's find out a little bit more about where we sit with contact tracing. Refresh our memories on what this is and and how it can be used and all those sorts of things. Dr. Thomas Cook joins us, and he is a privacy ethics and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and also a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, thanks for joining us again. It's always my pleasure. It's good to talk to you, Mike. I don't know if my analogy of scrawling on a cave wall is completely (laughs) accurate. There might be a lot of people taking offense to that right now, especially if they're the ones who are keeping track of our contact tracing. But maybe the best place to start is, why aren't we further along? Should we be further along in Ontario and Canada? You'd like to think so. And I think the the idea, the, the science fiction <laughs> ideal vision, if you will, that uh, big data and technology is simply going to make the world a faster, uh, more efficient, uh, more accountable place is, is just simply that. It's just a science fiction reality. There's a lot of problems fraught around big data and machine learning and AI, and, and this is a great example. Um, trying to develop any sort of robust automated system that might do something like contact tracing in the context of a crisis is basically a design for failure. There's there's too much pressure, there's not enough time, there's not enough resources, contracts have to be signed, so on and so forth. So by virtue of that alone, it's problematic. But to return to my initial point about the complexities around big data and machine learning and AI and the science fiction idealism, there's this very simple problem, Mike, where people who are epidemiologists let's say they're also surgeons and they're also uh, general practitioners and nurses who are dealing with health information, as we're seeing right now, need to have conversations with people that are computer engineers and computer scientists, coders, expert programmers that build massive predictive systems like we see um, in autocomplete, for example, when you're using Google. For them to have a conversation about what data is and is not relevant, about how to send that data to who, how long it's held for, what policies and procedures need to be put in place, who is actually a legally prescribed entity that could be responsible or accountable if something goes wrong. You can imagine that this line of thinking about the social issues between these two fields of expertise are almost insurmountable. 
And then when you start translating that into technical application, we see that the science fiction reality really starts to crumble. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of resources, and it takes a brand new lexicon, <laughs> a new language, really, for these people to have conversations. And we're still trying to create those things right now. So um, maybe the analogy of scraping something on the side of a cave wall uh, isn't uh, all that inaccurate, Mike, but I think part of the reason why is because uh, we're dealing with massively complicated relationship and communication issues that might make these kinds of uh, dreams almost impossible. Then maybe we need to look and say, well, other countries seem to be doing that, but is that kind of on the surface? Is that us looking and saying, well, in Germany they have contact tracing and you know maybe that's helping or, or they have it in whether it's South Korea or China and they seem to have done it. Is that something that maybe we need to look a whole lot deeper and realize, well, we may think it's contact tracing, and we may get this image in our head of all this data and all this science fiction-type world. In actuality, maybe theirs isn't as it appears? Is that fair? Perhaps fair. There, there's there's more to meet the eye here, Mike. I, I actually want to celebrate the idea, if I may, that the slowness inherent in the situation here in Ontario is a good thing. I don't like to normally speak of things in a normative sense, that these things are good and these things are bad. You know that about me. But what I mean is that we are slowing down to the point of having a meaningful conversation, an important one. And it's not about tech technical things. It's not just about privacy policies and procedures around data protection. We're talking about ethics. We're talking about large-scale privacy implications of what happens when complex social relationships and social systems have to socialize into complex technical systems. The current context right now in Ontario is one that pushes aggressively towards AI and machine learning. That's not necessarily something we're seeing elsewhere in the world. What we are seeing elsewhere in the world is the, the usage of pre-existing systems, Mike. We're talking about uh, algorithms that have already existed and just been slightly modified on Android and uh, Apple devices that will pull different kinds of data and then send them to companies who can analyze and critique them and organize them and give them to governments. We're not talking about AI and machine learning in the same sense. They might be more efficient in the sense of data collection, but this returns us to a very simple but important philosophical problem, and it's the one that we're trying to have here in Ontario. And it, it goes like this. What does the data actually tell you? I'm going to give you an example of, of how complicated this actually is. If, if phones take measurements about who we are and how we interact with the world around us, we might expect that those measurement systems and those, those mechanisms in our phones are expected to tell a story about COVID. This is why this is complicated. Let's say I wanted to build a new desk in my office. I will take measurements, and because I'm old school, I will write the measurements down on a piece of paper. <laughs> it will show the general shape of the desk and the lengths in centimeters or inches. But I forget to write that down because I'm, I'm quite scatterbrained as a human being. And I take this piece of paper down to Home Depot, now that I can actually go in the store and socially distance safely, and I drop it. If somebody picks that up, and they're an entrepreneur or venture capitalist, they might say, hey, I can digitize this data and make some money off of it. Because what it looks like to me is somebody's trying to build a deck. What's happened here is a number of things, but the most important one, and for the sake of simplicity, given our, our limited time, is that the context in which I made those measurements and that data is completely removed, and it's impossible for that person to know what the original context of that data is, but they see it as, a, as an avenue for telling truth, or at least building truth claims that are profitable. 
And unfortunately, we're seeing some of the biggest venture capitalists and hedge funds around the world right now aggressively pursue governments to say, hey, here's here's five and a half billion dollars. We want to build uh, a new software that interprets measuring mechanisms on your population's phone so we can tell you a story about COVID that you didn't already know. This is a philosophical problem about whether or not you can actually learn something significant about somebody's health and how they live as a social being by extracting data that is removed from the context in which it is created. So the slowness here is a good thing, Mike. Okay. Well, then that's something that at least you know, makes what we're seeing sound a little bit better when we, we always look around. And I mean, this is, I think, human nature. You look around and you think, oh, they've got it so much better than I do, or that person's life is so much better than mine. They're so far advanced. Why aren't we there? And then you kind of look at it and say, uh, wait a minute, there, there is always a whole lot more to it than might appear. We are talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and also a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center. Both can be found at Queen's University. So, as you've mentioned, some of these other countries already had systems in place. How difficult is it for us to put systems in place with everything else that's going on right now? (laughs) Well, one of the challenges we have to attend to right now, Mike, is that there's a lot of changes in legislation. We're seeing at the provincial level, the Information and Privacy Commissioner, Brian Beamish, um, just, for example, uh, produced his annual report on uh, uh, much-needed structural-level changes to how personal information is collected and protected in this province. And as an annual report, we didn't have COVID a year ago. You know, So when this report comes out and people are reading it, it doesn't necessarily apply to the context of COVID, does it? Some of the principles might translate. A lot of them don't. Um, one of them talks about open government, which we can talk, touch on more later if we have time. But um, th- th- what I'm trying to get at here is that this is an example of of things that are trying to happen within government that are, are responding to old issues. And government and bureaucracy is very, very, very slow. And then yet on the other hand, I suppose you could also make the argument that there are people in government that are pushing for uh, rapid changes under the new... Uh, Emergency Measures and Civil Protection Act that was enacted by the government uh, feels like ages ago, Mike, it was just a couple months ago. Um, Mm -hmm. That has actually allowed the Ministry of Health to uh, radically redefine really important portions of the uh, Personal Health Information Protection Act, PHIPAA. Um, For example, uh, subsection 47.1, which uh, defines the term de-identify, the requirements around that definition are changing. And that's really significant because what it's doing is it's putting pressure on health data custodians. We're talking about hospitals. We're talking about doctor's offices, dentist offices, for example, labs. They have to change how and whether they anonymize certain data as per indicated through this PHIPAA agreement. And the reason why this definition, the change in definition is being introduced, Mike, is to make it easier for government to look at any and all existing uh, historical health information to see whether or not they can learn something about COVID. This is a very, very aggressive legal change with serious privacy implications. And we're not even having that conversation in the public right now. (laughs) I have literally not seen you with respect, Global News or anybody else that you might compete with or CBC or what have you. It's not being discussed. 
So how can we have a conversation, really, an informed public debate with an emergent public discourse that can talk about what kind of solution we need? What I can see is that social distancing is working. It's tough. It takes time. But it's working. There are epidemiologists who are saying it's working. If we continue on this path, despite its troubles, we will find solutions that make sense from a holistic, human intelligence-oriented perspective. But big data is not prepared for this. Wow. Dr. Cook, then, if we are to have that discussion that you mentioned is not taking place, what question do you think we start with? Where's a proper teeing-off point? You you save the the tough one for the end. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really great question. I I, I want to... um, I want to be fully transparent um, about this question of big data because as a professional, there have been times where I've, I've really questioned what it is that I think I know in the world of big data and what it can promise. So in my capacity as a manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, I work with computer engineers and computer scientists and machine learning programmers every day. And they fundamentally believe that big data, machine learning, predictive analytics will cure, cure cancer way before any human being derives some sort of solution in a lab. But that application of big data happens in controlled environments with very specific variables that while there are certain social and socioeconomic implications that might come with that work, they are far less obvious than PHIPAA mandating every medical practitioner in Ontario to give up everything they have in order to learn something new about COVID, the, the, the differences in the application are massive. So there, there, there might be some promise for big data, but we're not quite there yet. I think what we need to be asking then to get back to your really tough and interesting question, Mike, is to say, what are the extents of knowledge? What can we actually learn as a society when we say, give us everything you've got? That's a really tough conversation to have, but nobody seems to be having it. It's a little bit philosophical, it's a little bit ethical, it's a little bit political for sure, but uh, it's, it's an important one, and uh, it, it's really difficult to have that conversation in a crisis. But um, as a social scientist, I, I cannot advocate uh, entirely that big data is simply going to provide the solution. There are people working on it in this province. They are trying to work through machine learning and AI. I'm intimately involved in this process, and I hope that we can work together to find something that might look like a meaningful, practical social science reality, or sorry, a uh, science fiction reality. Um, but we're just not quite there yet. So we need to slow down, have uh, these kind of open conversations about how we know what we know, and uh, go from there, Mike. All right. Well, thank you for your incredible perspective, as always. I will stop trying to rush things. I will stop wondering where contract tra- or contact tracing is, and I will start thinking <laughs> maybe slower is better. Dr. Cook, please stay safe. And again, thank you for your perspective. Thank you for slowing down with me. Anytime you want to go slow, just feel free to give me a call, Mike. It was a pleasure talking to you. Take care. All right. Take care of yourself. That is Dr. Thomas Cook. And he always does have that nice calming way of explaining things. And all right, I I will stop saying things like cave paintings on walls and stop wishing that we were further ahead when maybe just maybe what we're doing wasn't ready to be further ahead by this point. It seems that's a big part of this. Dr. Cook is the Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow 
at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. If we go back in time a little ways, we all had new meters installed on our homes, or perhaps you've moved into a place that had that new hydrometer on it. Time of use, billing the smart meter, lots of interesting things to get used to. And then, when this pandemic began, we were given a little bit of relief in that Ontarians were going to be at home quite a bit, being asked to stay home. So it was decided that time of use billing would be paused and we would pay one rate. And on Monday, there was another announcement that came in that outlined the future of how we're going to be paying for hydro. We've got an awful lot of things to keep track of right now. So I think we should all be forgiven if if we can't answer the question, what are you paying in kilowatt hours for your hydro right this second? Because I'm not sure we know. And what do we need to know going forward? Well, we are able to find that out courtesy of Tom Adams from Tom Adams Energy. Give him a follow on Twitter at Tom Adams Energy. Tom, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Right on, Mike. Thank you. Let's kind of use your analyst brain and and figure out what's going on here. I guess maybe the first thing we've got to do is get to the basics. So when we heard the government talking about things on Monday, just in case we missed it, what did we miss? Okay, so um, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, right, uh, the, the government had dialed back the uh, the rate schedule for the portion of your bill that relates to the kilowatt hours you actually consume, uh, uh, not the delivery fees and the the, uh, the the other stuff that you know makes it possible to get this stuff to your house and the taxes and whatnot. But the commodity portion of the bill was you know was historically charged on a time of use basis for most residential customers. Then at the beginning of the pandemic, they dialed it down so that everybody was getting charged all uh, um, uh, hours of the day and the weekends and whatnot, all at the the minimum of those three rates. There was a it was a three tiered rate depending on the time of day. And so then um, uh, that expired uh, May the thirty first. So the government announced for effective June first. The, the, the new commodity rate would be dialed up from the, uh, what it had been at 10.4 cents kilowatt hour to 12.8, you know, pretty substantial percentage bump, keeping in mind that it's only a portion of the overall bill, right? Um, but like the, uh, the charge that we've been receiving over the last couple months, it was a charge that applied equally to all hours of consumption, irrespective of when you're using it. The residential, small business, and farm customers that are on the time of use rate would be getting charged this now 12.8 cents per kilowatt hour. Okay, so that lays it out. So in other words, we had a 2.5 cent per kilowatt hour increase starting in June, so expect that on your next bill. And it wasn't like they, they dialed back anything else, right? That that was just the, that was the major change? Yeah. The, uh, um, uh, now, what what's, like, the implications of this 
um, uh, you know, of course, touch on the household finances, but it also touches on the province's finances because the province was uh, picking up the tab for that, um, uh, you know, that, that, that reduction in income that was coming in from the, uh, uh, the, from the residential customer class. Um, uh, and what one of the, the complications here is that the provincial government's already on the hook for a whole lot of electricity expenses. Um, uh, and, you, you know, so they're, they're obviously looking at, you know, the province's accounts uh, uh, saying, oh, my goodness, we have a, you know, big and growing liability for electricity costs. Um, uh, and and you know something's got to give. So I think that was the real motivation behind the province's announcement of the what's effectively a rate increase over what we've seen over the last couple months. Gotcha. We're talking with Tom Adams from Tom Adams Energy. You can visit TomAdamsEnergy.com. And we're kind of looking at how hydro is working. So now it's been upped a little bit, and it's going to continue. And then we're told, Tom, that we have a choice coming in late fall. What is that choice? Okay, so uh, um, the energy minister, uh, Greg Rickford, has indicated in an interview with CTV News um, uh, that uh, starting November 1st, that customers will have a choice as to which approach they would, uh, you know, prefer to uh, um, uh, uh, be billed upon. The the flat rate, uh, uh, you know, which is how it's done now, uh, or the old the time of use rate schedule with the uh, prices that bump up and down um, lower on the weekend lower on the statutory holidays lower late at night at higher uh, um, uh, in midday and highest during peak you know so-called electricity rush hour times uh, morning and evening so the the uh, the, the minister has said, it, uh, like, if you would prefer to be charged on one uh, uh, um, rate structure basis, you can have the option of selecting, you know, dialing up, choosing the, the option that works best for you. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of that. Um, uh, you know, it'll, 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 uh, you, you, some customers might find a, a little better on one than the other. Um, but in the end, it's not going to make a huge amount of difference for almost all customers. Really? Okay. And that's interesting because we always think, you know, this time of use, we're doing it. We have to do our wash after 7 o'clock or before 7 a.m. Same thing with the dishwasher. You try and cut down on what you're doing during the day. And yet, you're right. It, it doesn't tend to make a huge difference. Is there a way to test out what the best method is for us before we get to that point? Um, yeah, it, it, that that is an answerable question, uh, you, you know, to, to, to sort out the option of, you know, for your household, uh, w- would you be better off on this rate or that rate? Um, and, you, you know, it would be a nice thing for the utilities, actually, to make that available to customers, um, 
you, you know, yeah, because they've got the data. Um, uh, be very mm-hmm. simple for them on your their your customer account to uh, just simply give you um, a, a breakdown of you know had your bill been on a time of use basis you would have been charged this on a flat basis you would be charged that and then you could see because for a lot of customers they that the uh, like uh, just a one month snapshot of would I have paid more or less last month might not be a good indication over uh, um, a multi-season period where our electricity usage changes, right? You know, some some households, for example, are, you know, more dependent on air conditioning or electric heating or, you, you know, the, um, um, uh, s- some usage like that. Uh, and so the, the, the seasonality of their exposure to time of use versus flat rate would be different but uh, it, it it sounds like a you know it be a useful customer service for the utilities mm-hmm. to help us all sort this stuff out well maybe maybe we can ask for that we've got a little time before then and where we are now tom thank you so much for spelling all of this out you've made it a whole lot clearer for everybody we really appreciate it stay safe okay man thank you Take care. That's Tom Adams from Tom Adams Energy. You can find him online at TomAdamsEnergy.com. You can find him on Twitter at TomAdamsEnergy. So, yeah, it would be nice if you could say, here are the two options. This is what you would have been paying if it was flat rate because we've got a couple of years now of data on this. Here's what you did pay by time of use. This is going to be the overall the, the better cost for you. What do you think? Could could we get that? I don't think they want to give that to us, but I don't want to take some kind of proverbial coin and flip it in the air. I'd like to know. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.